Stay tuned at the end of today's episode for a short Tech bite. We'll be discussing how VMware's Project Monterey can change your data center architecture using DPUs from NVIDIA. With Linode, build applications using their simple cloud manager, API, or CLI. Quickly scale up or down with standard VMs, dedicated CPUs, and enterprise-grade GPUs all with the best price-to-performance and same pricing across 11 global data centers. They're also people, just like you. You get fast, human support 24 by 7. So visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number 2, C-L-O-U-D, and get $100 in free credit to try them out. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we're talking about how DevOps is a failure. It's burning everything down. It's horrible, and no one wants to work on it, or, or something like that. We've brought a guest on, Lee Briggs, and he wrote a blog post with the same title, DevOps is a failure, and he's going to explain to us exactly what he means by that. And it's more nuanced than you might think. Ethan, what, what jumped out to you in the conversation? We hit one of my absolute favorite topics, which is going and talking to that person who's not on your team, who does things you're not familiar with and who you are just suspicious of just naturally because they're not in your group and making a connection with them in a way that you can be more productive and deliver applications for the business in a more effective way. But it's about... I don't want to say it was just a culture conversation, Ned, because it definitely wasn't. There was more to it than that, but but that was such a, a big part of it and and an important to this idea that Lee puts out. Because it's not just that DevOps is a failure, but he but he but he coins a new term, uh, soft ops that uh, <laughs> that that he actually doesn't want to to live on. And you'll have to listen to find out what that's no, about. No, it immediately made me cringe. But you, <laughs> you can hear hear more in the episode. Uh, we have Lee Briggs. He's a developer advocate at Pulumi. Enjoy this episode. Well, Lee Briggs, welcome, fellow human, to Day 2 Cloud. Before we jump into the conversation proper, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I actually now work in a sales engineering role, which I think is everybody's immediately going to recoil in horror. Um, (laughs) But I spent the better part of 15 years as an operations-focused engineer. So Back when a system administrator was still an acceptable job title, I had that. Um, And then, I I mean, I actually started on a help desk and then went to system administration and then became an infrastructure engineer. And that was the kind of the way that we would all describe ourselves on the operation side. And then eventually became a site reliability engineer and and worked all the way up to to principal site site reliability engineer. So really focused on uh, infrastructure, but but now I'm working in a sales engineering capacity, which uh, I'm really enjoying. It means I get to talk to fellow infrastructure engineers and developers on a day-to-day basis. And I think the thing that I enjoy the most is that I get to see hundreds of different companies, uh, probably even thousands of different companies, how they're taking an approach to infrastructure engineering, how they want to be successful and how they failed. Um, You know, working in an open source company like I do now at Pulumi, um, I get to, um, you know, see the the pros and cons of lots of different DevOps approaches, um, which is a really nice place to be. Excellent. I'm excited to dive into all of that with you. Uh, It's interesting how our titles have changed over the years, but sometimes the responsibilities don't. So you listed off a bunch of like titles like sysadmin and infrastructure engineer and SRE. And 
I think there's, that, there's that was all at the same company, by the way. I had all of those titles <laughs> at the same company, and uh, we would rebrand that uh, role to try and attract new candidates, which I thought was always interesting. Yeah. Well, I hope each of those titles came with some kind of pay raise. Uh, I mean, yes, and um, you know, one of the things that, uh, as you can probably tell, I um, from my accent, I, I don't actually um, originate from the U.S. I now live in Seattle, Washington, but I am originally from uh, the U.K. and um, you know the the change in responsibility also uh, and 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 conversation also uh, changed as I as I moved countries. So which is which I could do a whole podcast on that uh, with you guys. But yeah, it, it 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 always changed responsibility as we changed titles and the actual role of the team often changed as we changed titles. Like when we were system administrators, we were racking and stacking servers in the old fashioned way, and then we turned into infrastructure engineers, which was kind of a hybrid cloud. And then we still had to maintain the data centers, of course. And then as we became site reliability engineers, less focus on the data centers. And, you know, and I'm actually going to, you know, I hope to talk about that as well. Like DevOps and cloud are so intrinsically linked um, that, you know, those job titles and responsibilities often changed as well. Well, let's do that. Let's let's jump into the the topic at hand, the main yeah. portion of the conversation. And and this was uh, this conversation was inspired by what I, what I will call an incendiary blog post yeah. that you put up on your site. <laughs> it was titled "DevOps is a Failure," and wow, that that yeah. is a title that's going to attract uh, a little, some attention. But I suspect there's there's some context involved with why you wrote it and why you titled that. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with when did you first encounter the concept of DevOps and what did you perceive it to mean? Um, yeah, so I talk a little bit about this in, in the blog post. And, and again, a lot of this happened at a previous employer. Um, I, I was lucky enough to work with a colleague and, and friend who, uh, an Australian colleague and friend who at the time I was really lucky, he was on the cutting edge of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember working at a, at a former company with him and he was talking about this hot new thing puppet and uh it hadn't even uh like they hadn't even formed a company around it yet uh, luke caney's was still um you know building it uh, as an open source project and there was no enterprise side of things and we were implementing puppet as a configuration management tool you know even back then and uh you know my understanding of devops really came from him um we uh, we worked together at a, at a previous company and then we parted ways for about 18 months. And then I went and joined another company and they had an opening in Australia. And I was like, Hey, do you want to come and work on this at this startup? And he accepted. And we we kind of ran into problems that I think at the time, this is kind of around 2012, 2013, 2014, that I think were really common, right? Like it must, it must've been around 2012 because we we're still in data centers. We had really, really large point of presences all around the world. We wanted to be, um, you know, an enterprise company and taken serious from an enterprise perspective. And so we had 12, 13 data centers and we were having the issues that I think were really ubiquitous at the time, which was the developers were sending us artifacts and saying, make it work in production, like Mm -hmm. go and run this. And then we would have problems and, you know, I was like, well, back up your laptop because I'm putting your laptop in production. And, you know, ultimately, we were trying to solve that problem, and and he kind of mentioned the word DevOps, and um, you know, I still hear it in an Australian accent even now when everyone says DevOps. I, I imagine my my friend, uh, my friend and colleague saying the word DevOps in Australian, and we, we were really trying to solve that culture problem. Um, you know, we had a very traditional operations team. We were still called system administrators, and you know, we 
obviously the um, the business wanted us to be more productive and wanted us to ship software faster and they wanted us to to get things into the hands of our customers quicker and you know the, the sales and sales engineers um, were banging on the door saying hey this customer needs this new release and you know we're trying to do a demo and then we would all be up until eight nine o'clock eight, eight nine p.m trying to get it working the day before demos and stuff and you know, if, if you if if you're kind of new to the industry and and you haven't been around for a while, like that might may seem kind of alien. You know, I I certainly remember one time when we had to order a bunch of servers for a demo when we were like, this is a six week lead time and you need it in two weeks, so uh, this is going to be interesting. And so that that was kind of my experience of, of what the problems we're trying to solve. We hear the word DevOps. You know, I, I watched the original talk by uh, John Allspar and. You know, they talked about the idea of, you know, 10 deploys a day at, 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 uh, at Flickr. And that just seemed so awesome. Like the idea that we were constantly iterating on things and we were constantly trying to make things better. And we, we both realized that in order for this to be successful, the developers had to buy into it. They had to commit. Like it wasn't a case that we on the operations side could just figure this out ourselves. We all had to be involved. And, and that was the, um, you know, the my experience of of kind of starting out with DevOps. And so it's over 10 years ago now. And, you know, you look at what the, the term has become and it's very, very different, obviously, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, you say, uh, um, I, you know, DevOps, as I've researched it, I always thought it was in the beginning, let's say, of my exposure to DevOps, it was for a system administrators. I've had many of the titles that you were describing earlier as you were describing your iteration through through things. And I thought it was like a tool tools for us to be like developers. And then no, DevOps is really for developers to automate their deployments. And we really did lose that uh, somewhere along the way. So w when you first heard about uh, DevOps yourself, was that kind of the problem you thought it would solve? Or it sounds like you're coming at it from a systems administration perspective as well. So did you see DevOps as tooling for you or as tooling for developers? I didn't even see it as tooling, right? Like I think the the main principle that if you look back at the kind of like murky origins of the term, you look at um, Andrew Clay Schaefer talking about agile infrastructure, right? Like we're going to have this entire concept of, moving quickly to suit business needs and we're going to apply it you know wholly across the organization and the idea that when as soon as you say there were devops you immediately think about certain tools is really surprising to me now and you know i don't want to be an originalist of the term like i'm not here to um you know talk about the the origin and founding of devops i'm i'm you know, and, and say that everybody should be, um, you know, going back to the origins of the term. What I'm trying to talk about is like the value proposition. The main thing that we were supposed to be getting out of DevOps was to get time to market, to have time to market reductions, to make sure that the businesses that we all work for are getting the value that we need out, that they need out of us. And in some situations, because of the way the tooling has been focused on operations people, that is sometimes lost. Uh, and, we, you know, we could talk a little bit more about this further further down these questions, but that, that's really what I'm trying to talk about is the, the operations-focused nature of it. If you actually go and talk to developers, which is something that I do six or seven times a day, if you talk to developers, and you can do this in your own organization, go into a Slack channel with a bunch of developers in there and say, 
how do you feel about the way we do operations and deploy things? My experience has been that at least 80 to 90% of them are like, I have no idea what is happening, right? Like, I don't know what even this is. You know, I usually have to ask for help. And that's the thing that I'm trying to solve for, right? Which is exactly the opposite of the way operations people think. We think in terms of, of hardware and cabling and network infrastructure and, yeah. and, and a security pipeline for pumping data through firewalls and policies and so on. And we think in those terms, the pathway to get that application from where it is to whoever needs to get it and that client server communication pathway a developer doesn't know, doesn't want to know, doesn't care, just knows when it doesn't work, when things are going slowly or when it's a pain in the butt to get the thing stood up or when it's working mm -hmm. fine on their test kit on the laptop that's out their desk, but not on the deployment server up in the cloud. They feel all those things, but they don't know. And, and again, I, for most of the developer folks that I've worked with, they don't want to know. They just want that platform kind of out of the way, a thing to happen, put my code out there and make it work do the thing, you know, redundancy. Yeah, and and I, I, I think I agree with that until the point where you realize that the developer has a pager and gets paged and is on call and they may have to ship a release in order to actually, they may not want to know about that, right? Like I think my job and our job as an infrastructure person is to reduce the friction for that developer to a minimal point. And there's lots of different tools out there, observability tooling and uh, deployment tooling and automated stuff that I think is really, really important to have a healthy DevOps culture. Um, but there has to be at least a, um, a, a back and forth con con consideration in when you put that tooling together, that it is at least a reasonable learning curve for any developer that has a pager is on call in production, right? And I think my experience has been most developers are on call at this point and I have some sort of responsibility to fix these things. And, and but you know, we, there is still a here. division of duties problem though, Ooh. in that developers Absolutely, are yeah. coders and operations people deal with the infrastructure side of things. Typically in a lot of organizations, mm. no matter how we've rebranded it, calling it DevOps or whatever. Um, and so the developer on call, uh, if they don't have that, division of duty, if the, the infrastructure part of it doesn't fall to them, you know, they struggle with that sometimes. And I, there, there does seem to be a tension there that I don't yeah. feel like DevOps is solved for us. 100%, yeah. I, I, I think you've done a really good job of summing up my blog post in a uh, in a sentence that is less incendiary, um, you know, like is is less uh, less confrontational. Um, but you don't get to the front page of Hacker News without being confrontational. So, um, you know, my my main aim was to get some reach on this and and have people at least read it and take it into consideration. And, and here we are, I guess. I think I want to bring up the collaboration thing a little bit more. I want I want to zoom in on that because collaboration is good, but it needs to be constructive collaboration. And we kind of need to know where each side of the table is coming from, because developers are going to have one perspective and the infrastructure folks are going to have another perspective. And I feel like the developers, they embraced, well, most of them embraced agile and scrum and all of those capabilities. And they think in terms of sprints and pushing features and whatnot. And infrastructure doesn't really function like that. So I think Ethan, that's kind of part of the tension you were talking about is infrastructure doesn't necessarily adhere or work well with the agile way of doing things. And sometimes we artificially try to push it into that realm, but it doesn't always work. It, it, it doesn't, but it is the subtext of half the conversations we have around infrastructure as code, Ned. 
That's true. Yeah. But the underlying components uh, don't necessarily always work well in that agile push, push, push framework. So the way that I would the way that I would personally summarize it is that developers want change and uh, infrastructure people do not want change. Right. Like, you know, it's (laughs) it's it's a, uh, a push and pull in terms of like who wants change. But when you actually like peel back the layers of what you when you talk about change, I actually think that the subtext is that. Infrastructure engineers do want change. They just want controllable change. Like we've yes. all talked about rolling auto scaling groups or, you know, a, a, you know, I imagine a lot of people listening to this will be all in and bought into the Kubernetes idea. And Kubernetes, the whole point of it is that, you know, you have a, re- you have a reconciliation loop that changes things continuously if it needs to, but it's controllable change. It's within, within two constraints. And I, I can say in that, that YAML is, file exactly what I want Kubernetes to do yes. and what the behavior is. So I still yeah. feel like I'm in control. I have the, the illusion of Kubernetes control. Well, like if you look at an, an AWS autoscaling group, they they give you a min and max. And that is essentially the definition for me of the controllable change. Like I want at least three, but no more than 10 autos, mm. uh, EC2 instances. And that's the the kind of change that I think we as infrastructure folks are more comfortable with, right? Like it's it's... We, we want to make sure that you can make those changes, but a developer just wants to actually fix, generally in my experience, just wants to fix the the, the problems that have been assigned to them, whether it's a bug fix or a feature implementation. And uh, I've certainly uh, been that person who is really nervous about a coming change and being like, oh, this is going to break everything. It's going to be terrible. Um, and and it can be really nerve wracking uh, for us as, as infrastructure folks, for sure. Right. Well, you, you said controlling the change. I think that's really important. But another portion of that is predictable change. Yes. Because yeah. if you're terrified of what that change is going to do in production, you'd like it to be predictable and also reversible. Absolutely. And I think if you, again, if you go back to the 10 deploys a day talk, this is what they talk about. Like it became more predictable as we did it more often. And that that's essentially, I think, where, um, you know, how we become predictable is to just do things all the time, right? And I, you know, I think this is a well-trodden path, really, in terms of what what I think we, we want as operations engineers at this point. Right. So the the original thesis in in your post was DevOps has failed. But I'm curious, before we, we declare failure, what does success look like? What would a successful DevOps implementation look like to you? I think, again, I, I've talked to a lot of companies and the ones that I have um, talked to that I really feel like are, are achieving success in their kind of, you know, culture and collaboration is, in in my opinion, is creating a culture of change with constraints and an easy onboarding for every single person, right? Those are the two kind of metrics that I would define. What I mean by that is... Um, you know, you can make changes to your infrastructure. You can uh, implement infrastructure as code and, and change things as you need to without having to um, worry about a uh, a developer putting an EC2 instance with a public IP address or opening database ports to the, to the world. Those kind of things that we as infrastructure people just inherently know is bad, but a developer is just trying to you know close out that issue in their sprint this week and they don't have time to kind of peel back the layers of subnetting correctly and and creating a vpc and all those kind of things so like a, a successful uh, a, you know having that successful implementation in my experience looks like that and then the second thing is that i talked about in terms of like an easy onboarding experience what i really mean is 
if somebody comes to you as an operations person and they say, look, I know you're super busy and I know you have all these different initiatives because you're supporting 10 different developer teams. I really need to ship this thing today. So I'll do it myself. And if you tell them they have to learn six different tools, they aren't going to do it. Like, it's just not going to happen. They're going to file a ticket with you or they're going to go around you. And I think that, it, like, if that is happening at your organization, like, in my opinion, that that is a failure of, of DevOps. Now, you could argue that, of course, that's a culture problem and that you need to, you know, all the developers just need to learn the tooling and take time out of their day and, you know, understand these things and, and understand what a Jaeger tracing implementation looks like and, and all these different things and fully understand how the Kubernetes reconciliation loop works. But that isn't their job, right? They aren't measured. Their, their, their um, measurability of success is not, I'm awesome with Kubernetes, right? Like that is not how they are going to get their pay rises and promotions and all those kind of things. It is a, it is your job. Like you are going to get pay rises and a million LinkedIn messages a day when you update your LinkedIn to say Kubernetes. That is going to happen, but a developer isn't going to do that. And the thing that I was really trying to get across was was trying to help people understand that because we as operations people are measured slightly differently to developers, we still have the business's best interests at heart, but the um, the measurement is different. Having that empathy for the developers and understanding that you know they aren't measured on this is uh, really the first step, in my opinion, of un- understanding how to to improve collaboration. Well, have we lost the narrative that DevOps started out with that it was supposed to be developers making it easier for them to deploy their code uh, onto infrastructure? Is that have we just completely lost that, Lee? Where now it, the the divide between operations folks and developer folks is never going to be bridged, and it's never going to be reasonable to ask developers to deploy their own code. I I don't think so. No, because I think if you look at the idea of infrastructure as code as an entire movement, it is very similar to the idea that the operations are going to have more development practices in their day-to-day, right? Like we version, whether you are using uh, Terraform or ARM or Pulumi or CloudFormation, you're probably following software development best practices. You might be versioning things with um, major releases and creating modules or creating CloudFormation templates. And, you know, people are able to choose certain versions of that. And, and you know, th- those those mechanics are still there, um, what I think is, um, you know, and, and I haven't, like, it's always worth remembering. I already mentioned earlier in the, in this, uh, conversation that I work at Pulumi. So I do have an agenda, right? Like I work in an organization that is trying to implement, um, you know, a, a, a practice that helps bring those two things together. But I don't think that's the only way to solve this problem. I think it's the best way, but I don't think it's the only way. Um, and and bringing something to the to the bringing ideas to the table that help both sides of the quote unquote divide be successful is really what I think it's about. And the the best summary I think in terms of you know why we haven't lost the the war in terms of or the fight in terms of. Um, whether developers will be able to is because there's 50 developers to five of us, right? And if you look at the standard engineering organization, there's going to be way more developers than there are infrastructure engineers. And the the onset of the cloud engineering and, and, and cloud provider movement means that all those developers are eventually going to want to ship their code without you being in the way as an operations person. It's your job to facilitate that in a safe way with, with all of the, co- the control things that we already talked about. 
if you want them all to go and learn Terraform and Cloud Formation, it's going to be a tough fight, right? Like, I mean, really, that that's really where we're at at, the, at this point. Even if it's a better tech, even if you truly believe that these are better suited for the, the job, we're outnumbered. And it's going to be a really difficult process, I think. One of the things that I've seen a lot of organizations embracing is the idea of a platform team. And the reason behind that is my original conception of DevOps is you had these engineers, these uh, these ops folks embedded in each application development team. And so you'd have that team of developers where there was five developers on the team and then like one poor ops person. Yeah. And they would work who, together. Who's getting beat like, hey, like it's your turn to like, and they were never able to actually have a predictable workflow because all the five developers were like, by the way, we need you to drop everything and do this today. Uh, I've mm. been that person, by the way. It sucks. Um, it's not a fun, it's not a fun job. Right. So what I've seen is rather than having that ops person embedded in each team, instead have a separate team, sometimes called a platform team, that's building what you're sort of arguing for, which is a platform that eases the onboarding experience and listens to what the dev teams are asking for in terms of getting stuff out there and just making it more seamless for them so they don't have to go around the ops team to get their code deployed. It, this is an incredibly common pattern that I see on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, it is the number one reason that people come, in my, my experience, it is the number one reason people choose Pulumi as a tool is because they want to build a platform and they want to build a platform team and they want to really stream, like that Netflix kind of paved road to production model is their, their new idea. And it's funny, like the actual um, inspiration for me writing the, the blog post was a thread by... Uh, somebody I follow on Twitter, Vlad Ionescu. Uh, I'm probably uh, butchered your name, Vlad. I apologize. Um, where he talks about platform engineering is dead. And I'm like, we're just starting with platform engineering. How can you be <laughs> calling it dead already? Um, but the point that he was making that I fully agree with is that the people building the platforms, the people who are kind of designing the platform is operations people again. And I built a platform in my previous role. That was my final thing that I did when I, before I, I left to join Pulumi is I built a platform. And it was the same tooling that I was using just automated into a pipeline, right? And so you would have to commit code and then it would go through um, this, this pipeline of releases. And I thought it was super, um, you know, super friendly to use and super easy to use. And then I actually talked to the developers about it and they were like, we don't want to do any of this. This is not what we want to do. <laughs> like, and, and then I was like, well, hell, I need a product manager for this platform. I need somebody who's actually going to tell me what to build. And at that point mm. I was like, okay, I'm just building a, I'm building Heroku, right? Like ultimately what I'm building is Heroku. And I want the, I want that Heroku like experience, but I'm trying to do it with a bunch of YAML and, um, you know, a bunch of tooling that, is essentially going to glue it all together and has failure domains and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that is honestly where I realized that I'd, I'd, I'd gone down a, a, the wrong path. I, I believe platform engineering is the right way to go because platform engineering is about building an internal product that suits your developers, that actually makes the developers happy. But you can't build it in isolation. You have to talk to them. You have to ask the people that you're supporting, what do you want this to look like? Um, instead of telling them, hey, like go and use Terraform and like learn a bunch of HCL and then you write it and you check it in, it gets auto-deployed and all that kind of stuff. You're failing, or like 
another incendiary thing that I'm tempted to write is like GitOps is a terrible idea because the user <laughs> interface is terrible. Like nobody likes the Git user interface. So why are we using this as the uh, user experience for people to actually deploy things? Um, it's essentially it's about really about asking people what they want and asking people how would you like to do this it is probably likely going to be different in every organization i've seen some organizations build web pages to do deployments which is kind of crazy when you think about we're all trying to get away from the aws or google cloud or azure console i've seen some people build binaries that do the whole thing like if you look at xctl um as a um as a kind of user point Somebody looked at EKS and decided this is really hard to do. And so we're going to build a platform mechanism to spin up EKS clusters. Imagine building something like that in your organization. But instead of building EKS clusters, you're actually shipping your product. That is a very common practice that, that I see on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what people want the experience to look like. And that's directly from the developers. That isn't me telling them what they want. That's what I'm hearing people want to build. So they're looking for, when you say they're still looking for command line style tools, but ones that are just very simple to use, or would they yeah. prefer like a UI? Some people prefer UI. So the, 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 two, the two experiences that I have is if you're smaller organizations generally want to build a command line tool because you're a startup, you've got 10 engineers, they all know how to you know, use the command line and NPM install a package or pip install a package. And a command line tool to do a deploy is very friendly to them. The larger the organization that I talk to, the more GUI heavy they end up towards. Now, of course, the idea that you would just have everybody in the AWS console is not scalable, mm -hmm. um, but it is possible to build a web UI where you just have the image name of a Docker image or the application name of, of what you actually want to deploy and then a version. And they do, it does, it takes care of the entire process for you. Like, in, in some of the larger organizations that I talk to that may still have a dedicated test team, for example, who are just kind of doing user input testing and trying to find bugs that way, those still exist. And they need a, they need a mechanism to deploy their entire infrastructure. And, and a web UI is really helpful for those. Um, that, that is a common practice. Or, you know, you might have a marketing team who wants to publish a blog post and, and you don't want to give them access to WordPress because you don't want to you know, potentially have your entire organization uh, rooted. Um, you know, that's that's another common mechanism. Like, we're going to build the marketing team a platform so that they can update the website and they can add content to the website. They probably need a, a web UI, and you can build all of the constraints around it so you still have predictable change, but with, you know, the, the end user in mind, what they need in mind. Well, what you're describing is a collaboration between the ops folks helping to build the platform and the dev folks who are going to be consuming that platform. That sounds an awful lot like DevOps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so maybe DevOps isn't a failure? I, it, maybe it isn't a failure, but I, while I'm talking to hundreds and maybe even possibly thousands of, of customers a day, I'm talking to customers who have gone through this journey and it's still a small percentage of the overall engineering industry. And so, like, if this was the prevailing notion, if I could post something like DevOps is a failure as a blog post and everyone goes, you're absolutely right and we're trying to change it, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. <laughs> but the, the overwhelming majority of responses to my post were, 
you are wrong. Like if you look at the Hacker News comments, one of my favorites was maybe you're just not very good at DevOps. And I was like, maybe I'm not like, um, <laughs> you know, like, which I'm okay with, right? Like I'm not trying to, I'm not out here trying to tell you, tell everybody that I'm like some, uh, you know, authority on this. Um, but I would agree with you if the overwhelming, you know, if people listening to this and nodding along and saying, yep, you're absolutely right, then I'll hold my hands up and say I was wrong. But the overwhelming feedback that I got from this post is that I don't know what I'm talking about. And and that's why I think it's worth having this conversation. I'm putting the podcast on pause to introduce you to sponsor Linode. You could cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines, developing, deploying, and scaling your modern applications faster and easier. In fact, when I was looking to migrate my WordPress hosting, I ended up picking Linode because it had the best price at the performance level I was looking for, and I've never looked back. The performance is there for me when my latest Terraform-related post drops, and I know if something goes wrong, Linode offers 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. You get to talk to like a real person the whole time. And while Linode is based in my hometown of Philly, they have data centers across the world, all with the same simple and consistent pricing model. And I do mean simple. You shouldn't need a team of financial engineers to understand your cloud bill. And with Linode, you won't. So whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. And you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Day2Cloud. You can find all the details at linode.com slash day2cloud. That's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D. And it's not just Linux VMs. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you could use that $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. As they like to say, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D, and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. Maybe it's maybe it's about definitions. Maybe we're we're reaching for words and what do words mean? So okay, we know what DevOps meant originally. We know what it's come to mean. But the thing that you hit on that was describing a successful DevOps environment was collaboration, and that's less about the definition of what DevOps is and more about culture and breaking mm -hmm. down the silos. We all still love our stinking silos in IT for whatever our reasons are. We gotta have that division of responsibilities and I do this and you do that and never the twain shall meet. But you described, let's get these teams together and let's build a tool that these folks want to consume, which requires a lot of uh, integration and, and deep communications and uh, a product manager you mentioned early on or someone did, or maybe it was Ned. Uh, so maybe maybe it's not about what does DevOps mean. Maybe it's about what is the approach required so that DevOps, I guess, since that's the context of the conversation, is successful within an organization, effective. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail. Honestly, like I, I couldn't have put it better. Really, um, the you know, I, I still always come back to that first term, agile infrastructure, right? Like. It, uh, agile platforms, it, you know, whether that is the right way to kind of consider this, it, it, it does resonate with me. It really does, like, it seems more apt than, 
you know, DevOps. And, and, and again, I think we really reached the, the, the zenith of DevOps when Oracle released the DevOps product that they, um, you know, I, I saw it yesterday, like it was an old tweet from 2018 of John Allspot. It was like how it started, how it's going. And the, how it started was him doing the talk. And then how it's going is the Oracle DevOps product. And that, that to me is really where we have, have landed. And, and I think we all agreed that the, the ideas are still there. We all want this, right? Like we all definitely want this to be successful and we all want everybody to collaborate better. What, what I guess, and, and, you know, I, I recognize that the name SoftOps is a terrible name and I hope it doesn't catch on. Um, <laughs> but what I'm really hoping is that anybody who's listening to this who really does care about DevOps and wants to reclaim the word, instead of, um, you know, instead of trying to, you know, jam your ideas down people's brains, I really hope that, you know, you listen to this and you start to, you know, ask your developers that you're supporting tomorrow, what do they need from you? What will help? What will make their life easier? How will, what's a pain point for them that they've just accepted and takes 20 minutes a day? How can you give them that time back? And that's really what I'm, at the very bare minimum, if if 50 people listen to this and start doing that and start to have that empathetic approach, I will be happy, right? Like that, that is, that is a, a better outcome than I expected. Do you think that, that like part of the problem is that DevOps has been co-opted by so many different things that the term is essentially meaningless at this point because as you mentioned there's an oracle devops service at you know microsoft Azure has a devops service yeah i was gonna say uh, microsoft changed it from visual studio team services to azure devops mm -hmm. and now you can devops all the things and uh, you know various other platforms and products out there all claim to be devops and there's positions that are devops engineers which gets really far away from the original definition. It, it, has it been so poisoned that we have to move to a new term? Maybe not soft ops. <laughs> I, I think, I honestly think it has. Like, um, may, maybe that's not a bad thing because I, I, like, I'm not here to say that what we've achieved with DevOps as it is now as a definition is bad. And I think, you know, something that we, um, we often forget is we are still 10 years down the line from racking and stacking servers. We've had a huge adoption in the cloud, you know, organizations, startups that couldn't have existed 10 years ago are now able to have extremely large production scale, do continuous delivery, have all of those benefits. So if, if what we have with DevOps right now is, is what it is, I'm okay with that because it's, it's driven so much improvement in the industry. What I'd like to do is get back to that original definition, though. And if we have to call it a new word where somebody who's better at naming things than me can come up with a term, a nice catchy term that everybody really cares about uh, would be great. Um, if, we, if we can get back to that original kind of like silo destroying mentality, I, I will be very happy. Um, you know, it, it's, it's always really kind of interesting to me to hear to talk to organizations that are looking at adopting Pulumi and they're like I'm coming to you because my operations team will not help me that's mm. really painful to see like I don't I want everybody to be a Pulumi customer but I don't want you to be miserable at work all day more than that I don't want you to be miserable and have to be like my operations team is not helping me and I need to deploy stuff and this is the only way I know how so, so your idea behind the, the, the soft in this soft ops term you're coining, 
Th- sorry, that you're not coining that you hope does not catch on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, but the, the, so it's soft. I guess you would say soft skills as opposed to software. Yes, it was both, right? Like that was the whole like idea. I thought that it had a dual meaning. Like it's mm. soft skills, a softer approach rather than like a, you will do it this way because I'm the operations person and I have the keys to production and also software. And I thought that triple meaning kind of, at least would ring a bell. I recognize it's a terrible, um, you know, it's a terrible definition, but empathy ops or something along those lines to me is really what I'm, I'm hoping to achieve. It's that, um, that open door policy that we seem to have got away from. Again, like another inspirational thing for me is that I have a, a former colleague who just maintains that every developer is not fit for production access and they shouldn't, and they're all terrible and they shouldn't ever be able to um you know touch aws because they're just going to do it wrong and my entire thought process is why like they have to do their job and if they're not doing it right that's because we aren't helping them like i certainly couldn't build a react app and would need some help with that um you know and admitting that is part of the the joy of having these two different disciplines so you know i really just want to get away from this um us versus them mentality. No, and and, and so, so often when an operations person says, I don't want to let a dev touch the production environment because they'll do it wrong. What they, they don't mean, they're going to completely blow it up and they have no idea and they're just hopelessly clueless. And what they really mean is they'll get 80% of it right, maybe even 90% of it right, but they're going to name things not the way I meant. Maybe they're going to not choose the memory allocation yeah. I would have hoped for. Maybe they're going to not think about, you know, this one little detail that would make life a little bit easier in the future. So it's, it's subtle things. It's like, yeah, most people are going to be most of the way there and they need that handholding and help to say, hey, so for, for the future, if we name it like this, if we tag it like this, if we, you know, add this logging feature, whatever it is, life's going to be good for all of us. And it's that little bit of training to kind of pull them over the, the finish line. But it's so much easier to say, they're clueless and they don't know what they're doing. Let's just do it for them. I had to go and clean up after them. And that yeah. I, 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 yeah. that's totally frustrating, right? Like I've yeah. had to do that like many, many times. But, you know, it's, it's, it's almost the same principle as like, you know, building friendships. Like you make mistakes and then you fix them and then you're all happier together, right? Like that's the, that's the entire philosophy of, of building great collaboration and great communities. Mm. And, you know, it, I think you gave some really great examples there of like naming things, right? Like you didn't call it the right thing. That's as, a, as an infrastructure person that like gives me anxiety. Like <laughs> this isn't a production application. Like why have you put prod as a tag on there? You know? Um, and yeah, I, it, it, we, we look at it from a different perspective because we're just different. I, I mean, I truly believe that ops and dev true equally skilled um, disciplines but different personality types is really what I think uh, you end up with. Um, uh, and maybe different concerns. You know, maybe we name yeah. things a certain way because it's part of our capacity management and we mm-hmm. remember better, oh yeah, we're going to run out, whatever. In the cloud era, that maybe that matters less than it used to. But uh, but there's reasons we name things and it's not merely for monitoring and observability. Sometimes there's more to it than that. So when something's named wrong, yeah, we freak out. Developers don't even know that those concerns are concerns. Yeah. I've certainly had the finance team message me and be like, why is the bill for this particular team so much? And I was like, well, this other team was tagging their instances with this tag. And so like, I don't know what you want to do about this, but, and then I have to go yeah. and fix it. And like, don't get me wrong. That's super frustrating, but 
you know, at the end of the day, that that developer team just wanted to ship things and they just copied the code from the other developer team who knew how to do it and didn't change the tag. And now here we are. And, you know, this is this. I mean, this is the industry that we this is the the situation that we work in. Uh, in an ideal world, um, all of the um, all of the in, um, operations OKRs would have something involved about how quickly you develop a, do deliver applications and all the uh, developer OKRs would have something about how operationally ready you are but that's just not how business operates and and so then we end up with this dual uh these these different concerns so uh, your original post was devops is a failure here's this soft ops things that we could potentially do which i think we could boil down to is a little bit of the platform engineering and a lot of the collaboration and empathy between the various groups and stakeholders. And we didn't even talk about how finance fits into it and how security fits into it. And that's probably like six other podcasts yeah, that we could yeah. do. Um, but I just, uh, rather than diving into all that, what I'd like to know from you is, what do you envision as a path to get there? I think that'd be a good way to sort of summarize the whole discussion. How can we get from the DevOps failure we have today to the nirvana of soft ops tomorrow? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just an ideas man, Ned, you know, um, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that we as an industry can figure this out. Um, I'm just here to, to, to light the match, you know, um, if you were to ask me, um, you know, what I see as a, uh, a common practice in terms of, you know, helping people be successful, the, 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 the short answer really is um, you know, productizing things that we want to build, thinking about them from a software development mindset. And, and you know, if you're building a platform, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I'm building a platform and I'm using Argo CD, I'm using Kubernetes and I'm using these things and I'm well on the way to you know, having this great LinkedIn uh, page. What, what I really hope that you do after you've heard this is think about what the um you know what the end user really wants that's going to consume this not what you want what not how you would want it to be built the the only the only suggestion that i have is just ask questions talk to the people that the stakeholders that you're dealing with build an internal product build something that is a startup inside your business you know bring people to the table by being effective and by getting things done faster and I think the rest of it will just shake itself out. I, I don't have all the answers. All I have is all the failures. Um, and, you know, I, I, like, I'm, I really do hope this just sparks discussion, really. That was the whole intent of the, the post was to spark discussion. And I actually would kind of be intrigued to hear what you both think, based on the conversation we've had, what you think would get us from where we are to where we need to be. I mean, <laughs> we could probably... It's a hard question, right? It's like, a hard question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will summarize it in this way. I think you've definitely put it on the right path. Building some platform teams is huge. And having someone in that product management role is even bigger. As someone mm -hmm. who's been in that role before, other folks are like, what do you do? And I'm like, I take, I talk to the people and I take the requirements to the engineers and I feel like I'm in office space, but that is actually my job is to understand and empathize with the customers of the product, what they want, how they envision using it, and then help translate those requirements to the engineers or the platform team that's going to build it. 
But Ned, the thing that you're describing is um, something that the industry can't solve. We have to solve it individually as organizations. That is, this is a culture problem, not a tooling problem. We can build tools forever and add new APIs and write blog posts about infrastructure as code. And that doesn't solve any of this. What has to happen is within a company, it needs to be structured in such a way that these conversations, uh, this idea of a product manager uh, and with customers that you're supporting are facilitated. And as long as we hang on to those silos, which look great in an org chart, we're never going to fix those problems. I think we actually, as an industry, have all of the tools. The tools are all here now. Like, not all of them in terms of like what we uh, what we would end up building, but the building blocks are certainly there. The cloud platforms really have created an environment in which we can kind of pick and choose the things we need. You look at things like Kubernetes, which I know is a very divisive topic in itself, but it, it, it markets itself as the platform platform, right? Like you can build on top of it whatever you need. We have several different infrastructure as code implementations of which, you know, you can pick and choose them, whatever's right for your organization. All of the things are there. The difficult part is bringing them all together into a unit that works for your organization. Like that is the thing where uh, where empathy comes in. It's about making choices that scales your organization. And it may be that writing bash scripts and, um, you know, having everything be idempotent um, via if statements in your bash scripts, maybe that works for your organization. I don't want to work there, but it definitely might work for you. Um, so, you know, pick the things that make sense for your organization, I think is really what what I think is is what I'm trying to help get people take away from it. And by your organization, I mean everybody, even the people that you have a really difficult relationship with. My experience of working with difficult personalities, and I have been called a difficult difficult personality in my working career, is because my experience with, with difficult personalities is that you were trying to enforce an idea on them. And if you go and read the um, DevOps is a failure blog post, there is a, a director of engineering who I won't name, who is going to eventually that's going to come across his desk and he's going to be like, I knew he was wrong. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> and that was what, five or six years ago. So, you know, being able to, I mean, as a, as a quick throwaway aside, being able to admit that you were wrong about something is one of my favorite um, personality traits. It's a really hard thing to do, um, especially in a very masculine world that we live in, in which being wrong is seen as weakness. Being able to admit that you're wrong is so fundamentally important to your career growth and being able to hold your hands up and say, you know what, I took the wrong position and I tried to make everybody do something that wasn't the right thing for them. And I'm going to take a step back and and reassess. Even just a, just implementing that as an idea at work is going to have massive, massive benefits to you as a person and to your career growth. So, you know, hopefully there's a lot to take away from here. Yeah, no, sage advice, Lee. I really appreciate that. And that, I think that is a great note to, to ride out on. If folks want to hear more from you, uh, we'll add a link to the blog post in the show notes, but uh, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, I have a, a blog post, leebriggs.co.uk. Um, and I am at Briggs L on Twitter. Um, and so please feel free to uh, come and tell me that I'm terrible at DevOps and that I don't uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, please do not come and tell me that Pulumi is imperative. I'm, I'm, my blood pressure is just through the roof at this point about having this <laughs> argument with people. Um, it's not imperative, it's declarative. Um, but anything else I'm happy to have conversation about. So that's at Briggs L on Twitter or leebriggs.co.uk. 
Okay. All right. I, I will bear that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Lee, for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners out there, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And you know what? I bet you have some ideas for future shows. Ethan and I want to hear about your ideas. Hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow. We both follow that handle. Or if you're not a Twitter person, reach out through my website, nedinthecloud.com, or hit us up on LinkedIn. I've been monitoring that as well. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Did you know that Packet Pushers has a weekly newsletter? It's true. It's called Human Infrastructure Magazine. You're the infrastructure. And it is loaded with the best stuff we have found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It is free and it does not suck. So you can get the next issue via packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. Hey, I know we said the tagline, but don't skip to the next podcast yet, because coming up, we've got a short tech bite covering how NVIDIA DPUs can offload VMware NSX traffic from your compute stack using Project Monterey. This is kind of a big deal, and you're going to learn the basics in less than 15 minutes. On today's Tech Byte, we talk DPUs, you know, smart necks, with NVIDIA. The context is VMware's Project Monterey. Wes Kennedy, TME for Bluefield at NVIDIA, is here to discuss. Wes, welcome to this Tech Byte today. And we got to start at the beginning. What is Project Monterey and, and why do I want it? So Project Monterey is VMware's complete reimagination of their, their management stack. So... You know, traditionally we had top of rack management clusters where we'd run all of our observability, security, blah, blah, blah. And as NSX and vSAN and all these other features have been embedded into v, uh, vSphere Cloud Foundation, we, we have basically distributed them throughout our x86 clusters. So that means that all of those manageability workloads are running right next to our general workloads, so our production workloads. And what we're trying to do is basically reimagine how that works because not only do those workloads take up a not insignificant amount of compute, but they also are living right next to the same applications that could get attacked by, you know, malicious actors or something like that. So, so VMware is trying to do is basically create some security boundaries and then offload some of that workload. I see. So the, the core idea here is right now everything's running on the same processor on the same system board. Maybe you want to sort of take some of those components and shift them to another location for security and performance reasons. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, especially as workloads um, get larger and larger and you look at AI and ML and all these things that are happening, we've got a ton of compute that needs to be thrown at our applications. And rather than continue to scale out our clusters to support all the additional compute that is needed, we're looking at just trying to offload some of that management framework and utilize some of the, you know, 20 plus years of ConnectX building experience and partnership that we've got with VMware to the offload features on a DPU, such as the hardware accelerators for SHA hashing or things like that, to really make things more performant, but also in introduce that security boundary. Right. Okay. So it, rather than buying another server that has, you know, all the costs and management associated with that, I could potentially add in some sort of network, a smart NIC or, or, you know, whatever terminology we're using for it today, yeah. add that in instead for a lower cost and get the benefits uh, from a performance security standpoint. So that that makes sense to me. Yeah, and, and you think, think too, it's not just about adding more hardware to it. 
It's also about the software licensing that comes along with that. So I think, you know, it, it, dropping in another dual 32 core node is is completely different than adding a, you know, I don't know, $1,500 smart NIC or DPU into the box and and utilizing the licensing that already exists for those nodes, right? So, you know, it's, it's just a completely different design, but at the same time, it's a design that we're all very comfortable with. So the NVIDIA interest here is pretty straightforward. You folks have hardware to sell that uh, can do this work and work with Project Monterey, help bring that vision to a reality. But there's a component here that is pretty interesting in that it's a it's a partnership with VMware. It's not like you're just shipping off a NIC to a customer, they put it in a box and magic happens. There's actually a partnership between VMware and NVIDIA to help bring this to life, right? Yeah, it's actually a three-way partnership. So it's it's... NVIDIA, VMware, and OEMs. So you got to think like with the GA release, we're going to release with Dell. So there's been a really close tie-in between all three of us because we're also looking at how do we keep these, these devices secure inside of the physical hardware? Because you got to think the DPU is sitting on the PCI bus. So we need to have management redirected in different ways. So, so we're working with Dell to do like riser card that then connects over through a separate interface to do all the, the command and control rather than doing CNC through the PCI bus. So it's definitely a deep partnership um, with the other two companies and then bringing that, that partnership that we had with VMware for so long where they've, they've integrated a lot of offload features that existed on our ConnectX line directly into their kernel. So we know how to work with VMware and we've been doing this for a very long time. Well, let's talk examples then, Wes. Uh, we're at a point where the, you got the architecture, we've got the uh, partnerships in place. What can I build with this thing? How does it make my life better? Well, the world is your oyster, Ethan. Come on now. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so Monterey is currently split up into three phases. Phase one should be GAing towards the end of this year. I, I want to say November. So the first phase is just offloading all of NSX onto the DPU. Um, so it's kind of an obvious workload to start with. NSX lives in every node. It's distributed and it's a networking workload. So why not start with offloading network to a DPU, right? So all the fancy things I can do with NSX around uh, distributed security policy, for instance, we're saying, yeah, let's move all that into the NIC and offload the compute cluster. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, when we're, when we're offloading NSX, that means that the management of NSX and the quality of service policies that were already implemented in of the ESX kernel to ensure that, you know, when I push a policy down that um, NSX get the compute priority to ensure that that policy is introduced we can kind of re remove some of that noise out of the ESX kernel and move that off onto the DPU too. So there's less CPU wait time introduced for your application. So it's not just the simple task of offloading NSX. We also get some of the other benefits of, you know, reducing the complexity inside of the ESX kernel itself. And we get some performance benefit from the card. We're, we're doing the offload. So yeah, we're freeing up compute, but then also the card itself has got network forwarding tables on it that I assume is going to make forwarding a little more performant. Yeah, forwarding, uh, connection tracking, you know, figuring out where the flow tables and all that sits. Like all of that is changing, but from, your, from the end user perspective, it doesn't look any different. So you're still going to log in the same console. You're still going to create the rules in the same way inside of NSX Manager. You know, in vCenter, it all looks the same, right? So... We're doing a lot of that work with VMware to ensure that your experience doesn't change on the day-to-day, -day, but how it's actually architected and implemented is, is a little bit cleaner. Ah, I'm glad you made that point about your management interface. Your operations don't have to change just because you're going with this architecture. You can still do things and deliver your services and policies in the same way that you had. 
the magic is all happening under the hood. And that's where that partnership comes to play. Now, Wes, you said this was a phase one, offloading NSX, and that's going to be GA you know, fairly soon here as we come up on the end of uh, 2022. So there are more phases, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So offloading vSAN is coming hopefully spring, spring to summer next year. Uh, obviously, I'm speaking for VMware here, and I am not licensed to do so. Um, <laughs> Fair but, enough. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so offloading vSAN is actually really interesting to me, given my storage background. But storage is a really heavy compute intensive resource that if we can start offloading checksum uh, calculations and SHA hashing and things like that onto a DPU and get it off of your x86, all of a sudden we can throw more horsepower at our at our databases and, and web servers and all those things to make sure that our, our production is running more efficiently. And then phase three is kind of sexy to me. It's uh, offering NSX and vSAN to bare metal workloads. So if, uh, you know, obviously there's, fewer and fewer bare metal workloads that still exist inside of our data centers today. But when you think about Kubernetes clusters or AI ML clusters and things like that, a lot of those places still have a hard time figuring out how do we handle security? How do we handle storage? Uh, Kubernetes and storage is always a big question mark for me. Obviously, there's all sorts of Kubernetes-y ways to do it. But if you're a you know, 99% virtualized environment, and a business unit comes to you and says, hey, we need to deploy this AI ML training cluster for something. Deploying it on top of VMware may not be your most productive option here. So some people would choose to go ahead and do that with bare metal. But now we can offer NSX and vSAN to those bare metal workloads. So it keeps your management the same across the board from a storage and security perspective. That, that's long been a concern, I think, especially for people running NSX was sort of where the border ends for NSX. And now you're picking up with your more traditional networking environment, especially if you have bare metal servers in the mix. So the idea of being able to sort of extend that fabric out a little bit more and encompass those those older, not even legacy workloads, but also brand new workloads like you like you mentioned that are running yeah. Kubernetes or an AI cluster. That that does seem like a, a pretty huge a huge benefit and kind of removes the need to still have some of the legacy network boxes you might have in there to handle the bare metal cluster portion of your environment. Right. Yeah. I, I think you know coming from a traditional VMware admin background that I have, the idea of bringing in bare metal workloads, which we had some at my old shop, was was something else I had to manage. Right. So if I can put all of that into one place somewhere where I spend most of my day. Why not do that? Mm. Now, Wes, is this going to be available on specific NVIDIA DPUs or is it like across the, the line? What should I be looking for if I'm shopping? So if you're shopping, uh, you're going to go to your OEM and basically it'll be Project Monterey ready nodes. They're going to become minted from the shop with everything we need. As of today, there won't be any retrofitting out in the field. And part of that is due to the, the isolation that we talked about earlier and the riser cards necessary to make all of that feasible and necessary. We're going to launch in GA with 25 gig cards. And then shortly after, I think early spring, we're going to launch 100 gig line with, with Dell and, and VMware. Okay, so all that's coming soon. Now, Wes, where do people go to learn more? Because the, I mean, this is just an introduction and there's tons of architectural questions that I'm sure folks are going to have. Yeah, I have a, a, a kind of a 200 level session at VMware Explorer, session number 1450. 
So you get to hear me and one of VMware's TMEs blather on more about this. Now, VMware then, Explore, that used to be, we called it VMworld, but now they've rebranded it to VMware Explore. And that's that going to be both a physical and a virtual event? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so session 1450 from you, that 200 level class to dig into more. And uh, what about, is there other ways? Yeah, so obviously we've got GTC, which is NVIDIA's conference coming up in the fall. That'll be completely virtual. Um, so there's a session there for Project Monterey. And then we're also going to be launching a Launchpad trial in sometime in September where customers can go ahead and uh, hop on a cluster and beat it up themselves. So um, you can head over to our website and sign up for that. And uh, we'll have all the links in the in the uh, notes. Okay, so Launchpad, that's uh, that would be NVIDIA's uh, try it kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So NVIDIA Launchpad, we've got all, a lot of our services and customer-facing things available there, including uh, NVAIE, which is our other partnership with VMware, basically running AI on top of uh, vCenter. Very good. Well, Wes, thank you for joining us today. And uh, our thanks to NVIDIA for sponsoring today's Tech Byte on Day 2 Cloud. If you talk to the folks at NVIDIA to find out more about offloading your NSX or eventually vSAN and other stuff from your compute by leveraging VMware's Project Monterey, be sure to let them know you heard about it on the Packet Pushers podcast network. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. (laughs) 